Hi everyone, it's Paul here with a couple of bits of pre-podcast business for you. Firstly, I'd like to remind everyone that a little while ago I made available a little lockdown gift for everyone, which is a Evan Hunter Ed McBain Collector's Guide. And if you want to get a copy of that, the easiest way to do so is to have a look at our blog, which is hark87podcast.blogspot.com. Help yourself, basically. It's a PDF document with all the different categories of his written works and a little biography as well in there for you. So dig it out, use it to check off your collections. And secondly, I want to apologise for the audio quality of my microphone in this podcast episode, which is ludicrous given that I live in a house with loads of microphones and recording equipment. I promise I'll make it better for next time, but uh, I'm afraid you're just going to have to endure my semi-Dalek performance in this particular episode. Enjoy the podcast. It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedural novels, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 35, Heat. To review this book, I'm joined by two hot and fiery individuals, Mr. Morgan Pyroclastic Flow Brown. <laughs> Hello there. And Mr. Stephen Spontaneous Human Combustion Royston. Hello. And my name is Paul Abbott, and I uh, I like a nice warm bath. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. That's my heat levels. Uh, as ever, if you're listening and enjoying the podcast, we could always do with ratings and reviews. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, just click in the app and give us a rating. And if you feel like it, a review is always nice. And any help with sharing and getting the word out is much appreciated. You can always email us as well at hark87podcast at gmail.com. And we've heard from a couple of people recently, which was quite nice. Just felt like dropping us an email to say that we're listening. I always like that. So once again, we're recording remotely from each other because it's day three billion of the coronavirus <laughs> lockdown. But uh, we'll try and make that the last mention of that now, you know, today, except to say we hope everyone's doing all right. And, you know, you know where we are if you need to chat. Mm -hmm. Well, here we are with heat. We've actually had quite a nice warm week here, haven't we, in in Liverpool? So perhaps not up to the standards of Isola in this book. but Uh, It's it's been enjoyable kind of uh, balmy heat rather than claustrophobic um, horrible, suffocating heat. So uh, we, we've been pretty lucky, really. We'll get stuck into a little bit of 1981 context stuff. I'm not going to do masses of it. I mean, does 1981 mean anything to you guys, particularly? To me, it's the year my younger brother, Gary, was born, who was featured on this podcast three times. Uh, I don't think so. Not not, uh, not of such uh, things as that i can't think no um, I, I think think my my oldest nephew uh, popped along in 1981 actually but uh, yeah i mean obviously the, as i'm sure we'll discuss when we get into into the popular culture at the time there's, there's some some stuff that i was that i've later become very excited about that popped up around then but uh, yeah well 
I'm sure we'll talk about some of that in the bonus episode, definitely. Mm-hmm. But I've got some I've got some little notes here of things that actually happened in 1981. It was a busy year for things being pretty horrible here across the world. Um, although in January the, uh, 1981, the first ever DeLorean rolled off the production oh, line. Okay. Just gullwing doors. Yeah, from the factory in Ireland uh, prior to um, it becoming the absolute <laughs> mess that it became as an industry or, or as a business. 5th of March, ZX81 was launched, the, one goodness. of the first super popular home computers. Ronald Reagan becomes president, mm. and in uh, and in March, someone tries to shoot him. <laughs> a lot of the year is spent, certainly in the UK, with riots as well. Absolutely, yeah. In- so the Brixton riots kick off in April, but relevant to us where we live in Liverpool, by July we have the Toxteth riots, which is literally, what, two miles down the road from where we we're all relatively sat, I would have thought. Indeed, and in fact, right by where me, me and they used to live. Indeed, yeah, we were right by, by the epicentre of it. Definitely, yeah. So it's a huge summer of unrest across the UK. It wasn't just Liverpool and, and Brixton, but it was like Birmingham and Leeds. I believe Huddersfield had riots everywhere. Mm-hmm. That yeah. stuff as well. Yeah. Huddersfield, riots, crikey. It wasn't a particularly happy time. No. Uh, but let's see what else went on that year. Oh, this is an interesting one. I found some proper Dan Brown level stuff here. <laughs> you know, this is, some, this is some Da Vinci Code stuff. What did the Pope murder well, somebody? <laughs> were, were there the ten popes in 1981? Oh, it might be. <laughs> <laughs> Just coming in, getting shot, going out. Um, May the second. A 55-year-old Australian man called Lawrence James Downey was on an Aer Lingus flight that was about to land in Heathrow. Just before it landed, he doused himself with petrol and walked into the cockpit with a cigarette lighter. It's a re- you know, there's a reason they lock these doors now. Yeah. So he demanded that the airliner turn around and flew to Iran, but they only had enough fuel to get to France, to Le Touquet, or whatever, however you pronounce that airport. And when he got there, he demanded that Pope John Paul II made public the third secret of Fatima. But then after 10 hours, the French police stormed the plane and they arrested him and no one was injured, which is good. That is good. What was the third secret? What's the first? I haven't got the actual details of the secrets. I'll give you the the general gist of them. The three secrets of Fatima consist of a series of apocalyptic visions and prophecies – supposedly given to three young Portuguese shepherds by the Virgin Mary in 1917. Mm. You know, 1914 to 1918, there was other stuff going on, but clearly the Virgin Mary felt she couldn't keep this in any longer. (laughs) The Vatican revealed two of the secrets in 1941, which was basically in the future, lakes of fire type stuff. But the text of the the third secret wasn't released Ooh. until the year 2000. Oh, my God. What, what was it? It was even more vague prophecy stuff, people going up hills to crosses type blood stuff. But, of course, typically, people still claim that it hasn't been fully released. You know, so it's a, a Vatican controversy. Wow. There's a yeah. film there somewhere, isn't there? Wow. Yeah. So you see what I mean? Proper Da Vinci Code um, rubbish, really. (laughs) 
But yeah, so that all happened on the May on May the second. That uh, hijack May the thirteenth. Pope John Paul the second was shot. Coincidence? Ooh. Not by an Irishman covered in petrol. It's it's just such a mad thing to find that. Um, Crime-wise, Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, was uh, found guilty and sentenced to 30 years, which was later upgraded to a whole life sentence. One of the biggest crime stories I think there's been in living memory, that one. Definitely. The wedding of Charles and Diana takes place. Made all those mugs, didn't they? Yeah, there was a lot of merchandise. So much much commemorative tat. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I wonder what the value of that stuff is now. I was just going to say, you would think, you would like to think it's probably worth something, but it won't be just because there's so much of it. Yeah, it was just You only have to go into any charity shop and there'll be something there. Oh, yeah, definitely. The whole landfill's devoted to stuff that they churned out at the time. Yeah, memorial plates and tea towels. <laughs> you really want a, uh, a Fergie and Andrew tat, don't you, really? That's, oh, yeah. That's, that's the, the real pay dirt, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple more things from 1981 before we move on. Uh, Anwar Sadat was assassinated in October. Mm-hmm. Oh, September. I skipped over this one. Ric Flair defeated Dusty Rhodes to win yes. his first World Heavyweight Championship. If I, did, if I didn't worry about disturbing my neighbours, I'd definitely give us a, a quick woo to celebrate that. <laughs> but uh, no, I'll hold off. Perhaps everyone at home can do a little out loud woo uh, while they're listening to this. And December, the opposite of heat, the UK at least saw the worst win- one of the worst winters on record, record low temperatures and snowstorms. Right, and I'm sure there's probably some slightly faded photographs of all of us somewhere playing out in this snow, I'm sure. I have no but, doubt, yeah. Yeah, let's move on to actually some stuff getting a bit closer, some McBain Hunter stuff. For 1981, the year that this comes out, what have we got here? One Evan Hunter novel called Love Dad comes out. One Ed McBain Matthew Hope novel, Stiltskin, comes out. Heat comes out. And there's only one short story I've got listed, and that's credited to John Abbott and in Ellery Queen's Mystery Magazine called The Man With Ideas. And there's a couple of filmic things. So in June of 1981, CBS Afternoon Playhouse adapted the Evan Hunter book, Me and Mr. Stenner, which I've not read. So that was a 60-minute adaptation of that. And in Japan, in October, the film Kofuku, or Lonely Heart, came out based on the book from the 87th Precinct that's very, very good. And that's that for McBain there, really. So we'll get on to the book. Seems like a good idea. I suppose we probably should at some point. Yeah. So publication-wise, Heat, which is... Copyright registered in November of 1981. It's the last of the three Viking Press hardbacks. Still in Hamish Hamilton in the UK and Pan. And it's the only one published in Ballantine in the US paperback editions. And I don't know why, but we'll probably look at what that looks like in the bonus episode when we look at the covers. Now, I'm assuming we've probably all got the same edition here assuming it's the one with a fan on the front, just checking in with you guys. It, it, it certainly is. is. 
in this case. Okay, yeah. yeah. Well, then we probably all have the same misspelling. On the dedication inside the front cover, in well, not front cover, you know, before it starts, yeah. it says this is for Ania, A-N-N-I-A, mm. and Sid Solomon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's actually a misspelling of Annie. Because uh. Annie and Sid Solomon, Sid Solomon was an abstract artist who lived in um, Sarasota, Florida, as Hunter had a home there. And he had a home in the Hamptons as well, where loads of artists and writers would get together. So he was a mate of, of McBain's hunters, mm-hmm. as was Annie Solomon. Uh, John D. MacDonald was a friend of his. Mm-hmm. Apparently it was Sid Solomon who suggested to John D. MacDonald that he should use colours in the titles of his books. Oh, right. Brilliant. So there you go. And uh, I've discovered that apparently Evan Hunter went to the Galapagos Islands with the Solomons. <laughs> <laughs> To have a look at some lizards and turtles and stuff. Wow. So there you go. That's the level of detail I get in my research. Yeah. I think you'd remember a name. You'd gone gone to the Galapagos Islands with somebody, wouldn't you? Yeah. <laughs> dear, oh dear. Right. Heat. There was an adaptation of Heat mm. in the 90s. Well, I say there was. There was three NBC ones done in the 90s, and the third one was called Heat Wave presumably because Heat had been used as a film title a couple of times. Oh, yeah, of course. But as I recall, having watched it, it doesn't really have anything to do with the plot of this book, except, I think, the Kling subplot that's in it. Okay. It's got Dale Midkiff as Steve Carella, Paul Johansson as Burke Kling, Erica Eleniak as Eileen Burke, who doesn't appear in this book. Hmm. So maybe at some point we'll have a a watch of that and... Let fill people in on, on that, but I don't really think it's got anything to do with the book we're about to discuss. Hmm. So Interesting. But it was written by Larry Cohn, who had actually worked on the um, the TV series in the 60s, so there you go. Yeah. So I don't know what's going on with that and why that's such a strange thing, but yeah, this Heat and the next two books were the ones that were adapted for NBC in the 90s, so I'm sure we'll talk more about that stuff. So I've got a theory to put to you before we get stuck into the book anyway. Okay. Go on. Is this book the start of a new season of the 87th Precinct? And by that I mean, you know how Ghosts was weird? Mm. Very, very weird. Does Ghosts not feel like it was like a a Christmas special or an end of season episode yeah, I see. of like something? I see what you mean, yeah. Well, maybe in that kind of sense, yeah. This is about as ordinary uh, 87th precinct as we've had for some time isn't it yeah if you think so it it does feel a bit like a deliberate getting back down to business doesn't it um yeah yeah even if it's a bit bigger than some of the earlier ones not masses but it's i think it's pointing the way towards the the novels getting a little larger yeah as as the 80s go on yeah feels like, yeah, a little bit of a kind of reset and kind of refocus, uh, perhaps. It seems to be a bit bit more of an effort to quite a few more of the cast are involved as well, aren't they, thinking about it as well? Definitely, um, yeah, which is nice. Yeah, mm. mainly the detectives. There's not, I don't think, is it, uh, aside from Kling's story, there's none of the, uh, not much other backstory going on here, really, is there? It's all very much detective-driven. 
Yeah, there's some there's some good sort of detective colour, as it were, in you know, spread throughout this. And there's quite a lot of references back to other books and things that have happened, mm. mainly events in ghosts. Not not to do with the ghosts, fortunately. <laughs> it would have God, it would have annoyed me if at there's any point there was a reference to actually having seen ghosts in yeah, this one. We've had quite enough of that. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, perhaps listeners can ponder on what the seasons of the 87th Precinct books would have been so far. Mm-hmm. I have a vague notion that you've got like Cop Hater to the Empty Hours, then you've got Like Love to Hail Hail, then you've got Sadie to Ghosts, and now we're on the next season. That's my mm. rough thing. All right, okay. Yeah, I can see Because the ones that I've sort of chosen as ending ones sort of tie into where I think there's a little something different in the book, mm-hmm. and then it starts like, up again in that, so... Just a thought, something to ponder on. Yeah. What I want to talk about as well, because this book was written in 1980, presumably, or through 1981, reflecting back 1980, 1981, in New York. 1980 in New York was apparently the worst year of crime they'd had on the city's records by that point. And there's definitely a reference in this book to a similar thing happening. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there's a big chunk about crime rates going up and whatnot yeah i found an article from february of 1981 where the police had just released the crime figures for the year before and apparently they just released them plainly they didn't release any sort of analysis or stuff like that but murder had had gone up significantly rape had fallen a little robbery was up massively Mm from like 85,500 in 1979 to over 100,000 in 1980. And that was their main sort of metric they used for measuring crime levels. Uh, Burglary similarly had shot up as well. Theft had shot up. Auto theft had shot up. So, yeah, it's a really, really difficult time for crime in in the city and therefore in the equivalent city in these books as well. And that's even without taking into account the rise of the drugs issue, which I suspect is coming in in the next book that we're going to look at, to this one anyway. Hmm. So, yeah, so that's the context of the real world. The other bit of real world context, which I just before we came on air, as it were, as I thought I'd check what the weather was like in New York in 1980. And I think it wasn't much different in 1981, the summer. I always looked like the year before he wrote them just for this, because it always feels like that's sort of where they are. Yeah, so if this book takes place on the 8th of August, 9th of August in 1980, New York, today's high was 95 degrees, the eighth day in a row with a high in the 90s. Oh, God. Which for us who use centigrade or Celsius, it's um, that's like 30 degrees, isn't it? Did did he hit, did he live in New York at this time or? Well, he lived. No, he didn't. <laughs> he, well, he lived. He lived in Connecticut and sometimes in Florida. I think at this point, so he wasn't trapped in the city. But thirty degrees in New York is at summer is horrible. It's terrifyingly hot. The average high and low during these days was ninety three degrees. I just can't even imagine that. I just <laughs> ludicrous. So there you go. He's not he's not just decided to make up a season there. He's and in that way it sort of makes it feel a little bit like Cop Hater again, doesn't it? Because that's that was all hot city yeah. summer stuff. Mm, that's true, yeah. Before we get into the story, general feelings about this one 
Morgan, this is your first read, isn't it, of this? It is, yes. I was completely convinced uh, that I had read it before, just from the title, and convinced that I had it on my shelf. It turns out I didn't, so I had to procure a copy as quickly as possible. And, yeah, first read, um, as I I say, it does feel like a kind of, very much a kind of strong sort of attempt to return to the kind of, a lot of the core kind of, values of the series really after a few sort of comparatively experimental um entries in the series i think yeah um, yeah it's 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 a good one i think yeah um, I, I, I don't know how much more i want to say about it until we've got further in but uh yeah yeah fair enough yeah, definitely steve yeah uh, well I've, I've read it um before just the one time yeah one of those that you kind of loosely remembered the plot but uh, yeah I couldn't remember what actually end up uh, uh, transpired really I remembered the cling backstory element so that mm-hmm. kind of seemed quite familiar uh, yeah. but the main focus of the crime I couldn't quite remember oh, I wasn't sure whether it was me going a bit mad or whether the plot in this reminded me of a plot that we've had not that long ago did, did did we not have a plot that involved somebody travelling, you know, somebody who's under vague suspicion, not being in, like, being on the other coast, and yet... There is. It was a little while ago. It was, I think that's Killer's Choice, isn't it? I have no idea. With the murder of Annie Boone? I believe so there's there's someone who's sort of on the other side of the country and they're at a party and they've been seen between the hours of at the air i can't remember exactly how it goes but there is definitely something like that i think it's that one but uh, we've, do, we've done so many <laughs> uh, but yeah definitely there is stuff where they have to keep checking with the other side of the country to yeah. to, to figure out movements things so, so that bit felt familiar but whether it was that or whether it was just the reality that i have read this before and therefore perhaps it was just coming back to me a bit more than i i thought but um yeah kind of That's a bit a of a spot, though. bit of a slight reset and a bit of a yeah the analogy of it being a season opener i think is is fair really and he's think he's fully committed now that he's going to be a bit more i think i've said this before a bit a bit more adult in the in the language he's, he's mm. been a bit more i suppose what we'd call racial language in there he's trying to reflect the sort of the attitudes on the street well he's not sugarcoating anything here it's a bit more hard hitting in terms of the language i think definitely he's, he's very much kind of uh, keeping it sort of in step with the kind of contemporary sort of style of, of I guess other thrillers that maybe younger authors are making is you know it, it could probably have been very easy for him to get stuck in kind of 50s or 60s mode um, but he's definitely not done that he has really moved with the times which is is impressive I think yeah so it's summer it's very hot and humid in fact it starts on the at half past eight on the morning of Friday the 8th of August in whatever year this book is set that's always a bit vague and we are at a crime scene of the A plot of this book. I reckon this plot, this book has four plots in it. Yeah. Even though one of them only takes place over two chapters. Yeah. And the main one that we're, we're dealing with is the discovery of a bloated corpse in an apartment that hasn't, hasn't had the air conditioning on despite the overwhelming heat. So it's a pretty 
stinky scene that's, <laughs> that that Corella and Kling turn up to at the start. Yeah, page two. The, the what I would I think is the B plot comes to life, which is where Kling says to Corella, "I think my wife's playing around." Yep. So you've got this little bit of intrigue straight away. Let's deal with plot plot A first. Mm. Bloated corpse of a drunken painter. Must be a good album title. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've got two clues to go on, haven't they? They've got a bottle of pills mm. and the air conditioner not being switched on. Yeah. And that's it. They've got to work from there. Yeah. Really. It, it looks looks like a suicide and the, the, the Corella has a certain amount of um, feeling like, oh, yeah, I could just close this out as a suicide. But there's there's obviously some, some nagging doubts there, um, which just make him kind of keep in, investigating a bit further. And then obviously uh, further details come to light. But yeah, it immediately looks like a suicide and that's kind of, the the basis they're starting on, although uh, McBain's at pains to point out that uh, they have to investigate um, suicides yeah. in the same way that they would would uh, uh, a homicide, yeah, that, which is something that crops up in a lot of police yeah. dramas that that you watch and read. I wonder whether it's true, I suppose it must be. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how how literally it's true like that, and um, but you'd assume so, given like I say, given how often it it, it crops up. Really, mm. I just finished reading a book by Freeman Wills Crofts, a writer from the 30s, about someone who fakes a suicide. And of course, that even there, it's, they're saying we have to investigate it hmm. just in case it's, it could be something else. Maybe then. Yeah, I suppose yeah. here you've got the, uh, because the aircon's been off and this person's been on his own for a week, it kind of denies them any ability to know when he was killed and therefore that raises a bit of suspicion. But... I suppose yeah. McBain's bit of get out here is even Corella only does, does a slight bit of digging, and the more digging he does, the more dodgy it all gets. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't really take him much digging to justify further digging, I suppose. Well, it's not a massively deep and involved case, is it really? Because, like you say, he digs, he finds something, he digs, he finds something. Yeah. There's not really many kind of red herring kind of you know, dead end avenues of investigation. It's just more the slow burning, fairly linear kind of investigation, Mm. I suppose. So that happened and they start investigating that. But of course we've got this issue with Kling. So the, the B plot in my mind is Kling investigating his own wife, which (laughs) you immediately know that you're in for some, more cling-based love bother here. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a strange thing. So it is a lot, an interesting thing about social position, I think, being told through that story mm. about Kling not feeling that he belongs in a world of money because yeah. he only makes, you know, however many thousand a year when he's, he lives with a rich model. That, that seems to be at the absolute root of the disintegration of that marriage really doesn't it kind yeah. of his his kind of well not paranoia but you know his concerns about it and kind yeah. of inability to ever address it really 
Yeah, he doesn't feel like he fits in. You get the impression that's kind of a wedge that's really been between them all the way through that marriage, and it's uh, it's just been driving them further and further apart from day one, really, yeah. Yeah, but when you start getting uh, uh, false court orders and <laughs> yeah. uh, inventing fictitious detectives for interrogating residents of a building, all for the purpose of tracking down your wife, you know, you're in a bit of... A bit of bother. Yeah, and not only that, but also actually using an incident that happens to him of what I would call the C-plot, which is that someone's just got out of jail and has come looking for Kling to kill him. Yeah. Now, haven't we had that as well? Haven't we had somebody else coming out of prison hunting down the detective? Uh, probably, and off the top of my head, I cannot remember for the, what it would be. Yeah, I thought that was a bit slight. It seems slightly familiar, but again, I might be... Uh misremembering yeah it definitely is but i can't place Mm. my finger on exactly which story it is at the moment and the story that it reappears in hello everyone it's me groff conklin the fact checking ghost what steve-o is thinking about here is the reappearance of albert bryce in the novel so long as you both shall live he originally appeared in the story sadie when she died when detective bert kling arrested him and shot his brother that's all for now yeah, so you've got someone who's been in, in jail for 12 years because of, you know, arrest by Kling, coming back to the city. It's a fascinating view of life in jail, let's say. Mm. Yeah, it's quite a, quite an interesting character, that uh, <laughs> fella. Yeah, Jack Halloran. Did, uh, did, he, did he crop up in a previous story? No, he didn't. Oh, okay. He didn't. This is a, an untold tale of the 87th Precinct. It's an interesting thing. McBain does use him to sort of discuss how life works in prisons. Yeah, and how the city's changed, I was going to say, as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. He comes back to look at how the neighbourhood he lived in has changed sort of in terms of the ethnic mix and stuff like that. And when he discovers his daughter's married to someone who's black, it's it sends him even loopier than he already is. And he's a horrible, horrible racist man, except for the fact that he's got relationships with African-Americans from his time in jail, which are very powerful due to the horrible way the life in jail is. It's, it's quite sort of graphic in its own way, what, it, what he talks about going on in, in Castleview Prison. It's, yeah, some of his strongest and most sort of stomach-churning language, I think, mm. even though it's not, you know, a detailed picture of violence or sexual assault essentially within within a jail so that's a lot of fun that bit yeah Yeah. and just while we're talking about other plots my d plot my one i think is number four is is maya maya's drug bust oh yeah yeah which seems to be the french connection yeah (laughs) the french connection about 10 years after the french connection yeah a bit odd but i do like it because maya maya's still got his leg sort of taped up from or he's suffering from having been shot <laughs> because he went out into the place of Corella during Ghosts at Christmas. And, and it's like, you can't kick the door in. And he's like, I'll <laughs> kick your door. I'll kick your door in, Lieutenant. Let me go. See, it's, yeah, so what's kind of the purpose of that D-plot then? It doesn't really have one other than a way of getting the other, uh, the other detectives involved. I think perhaps it's there to reflect that 
the ongoing rise of drug crime in the city. Yeah, maybe. And, but mainly, like you say, to get all the others involved, because suddenly they go from just a lot of the detectives just being mentioned or being around to actually being involved in this drugs bust in the middle of it. So you more or less get the full cast coming through mm. for that, more or less. Yeah, they, they mostly get a little mention at least, don't they? Yeah. So I do like it, though. I like a little little vignette in the middle of the book. Yeah, it's it's, it's very book. good fun. It's, it's uh, It adds a little sort of almost farcical element to with the squabbling about who's going to kick the door in and negotiating who's going to get bulletproof vests and... Yeah, yeah. It, it, just it, although it's a perfectly serious subject, it, uh, it's it's quite a sort of fun kind of. Um, well, compared to what else is going on, it's quite fun, really. So, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it, it, I think it, it does serve a purpose, definitely. Yeah, it definitely does. So, anyway, we're going along. We've got Kling's made this decision to start tailing his own wife. Uh. <laughs> We've got Corella chasing down the relatives of the dead man, the the bloated corpse. And what we've actually got a lot of in this book is little Easter eggs back to other books, as we've mentioned, you know, because obviously Kling's marriage is in there. So, so long as you both shall live is referenced a few times. There's the stuff about ghosts with, with Maya Meyer as well. But there's also a few uh, little real world type Easter eggs in here, such as in chapter three and i want to mention this one specifically something at the start of chapter three because we had a question from one of our our chums on twitter what are you reading for at w-a-y-r-f who asked i'd love to know more about his research process did he know anyone on the nypd well there's quite a lot of interviews where he's been asked that and he sort of said yeah i started ringing them all the time and blah 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 but i can be more specific about that because in this book specifically in chapter three and later again the characters pass a statue and the statue is of general richard joseph condon and that was in the real world dick condon richard condon was an nypd guy who was a mate of mcbain's who was his main contact for research Wow. Do you know, I saw that name pop up and I thought, I bet Paul's going to know something about this. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the main thing I know about it is there was an article in the Sunday Times in 1971 by Philip Norman where he was interviewing McBain, one of these deep dive articles. Mm. And he describes, quote, his police friend is a pug-featured young man in a waistcoat named Dick Condon. <laughs> Pug featured, that's, you know, <laughs> I don't know if that's supposed to be good or bad, really, in this context. He puts Hunter Wright on all procedural matters for the 87th Precinct, such as how to procure warrants or ballistic tests or the perplexities of Miranda Escobedo. You keep talking, he chided Hunter, about a Smith & Wesson point thirty eight special. There is no such thing. <laughs> so it sort of tells a story of this guy that Hunter goes to for information and then just writes what he wants anyway. <laughs> But yeah, they were, he was the main contact for a long time, I think, for who he'd ring up and ask these questions to. Cool. So that's nice. So that answers that question. It was a good, timely question, that. There's quite a lot of the city in this book, actually. That's another thing. While we've got statues on corners of people in our world, there's loads of stuff in this book about the city, particularly mm. Chinatown. Yeah, that was really interesting. I always love it when they kind of fleshes out more of the details about the city and its history. So because Kling's occasionally having to go to Chinatown in his pursuit of his wife, 
we actually get loads of stuff about essentially downtown Manhattan, including stuff down towards what in the real world would be Wall Street and, and New York's mm. Chinatown and Little Italy, which is covered by the fifth precinct in the real world, but is the Chinatown precinct in Isola. So, that, yeah, a massive amount of fleshing out of detail there. I was trying to write down a list of all the streets for my research, mm. and it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of it. So I like that detail. Yeah, that's cool. We also get long time no see Easter egg there with Manfred Leider, the police psychologist, comes back from that one oh, as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. I was trying to remember which one he was from, of course. Yeah, definitely um, interpreting dreams and what have you. So, yeah, that his appearance hinges on the notion that the dead guy took these pills that were his wife's, but everyone's saying he, he couldn't take pills. Yeah. He was, you know, psychologically incapable of, and people are like that. Definitely. His, his brother corroborates that, who is described as being one of the hairiest men ever. <laughs> it looks like a large <laughs> orangutan, doesn't he, I believe? Hairy ginger man. There's a very funny line where, like, Gennaro suddenly like really intrigued by this guy and like, like presumably because he'd never met a, a, an orangutan who could talk before or something, something <laughs> yeah. like that yeah there's, there's some good uh, Detective Dick Gennaro stuff in this yes where he actually ends up he has to go out with Corella on, on a thing and Corella's like oh just anyone else you know just someone to bounce off instead of this Divvy. <laughs> it was also the other thing with Gennaro is when they're in the squad room and he's just listening to the radio out loud, regardless of what anyone else is doing. Yeah, and won't turn it down because it'll spoil the acoustics. Yeah, and blames Corella. It's like you're Italian; you're supposed to like music. <laughs> On the subject of music, there's a point at which there's quite a lot of my favourite thing. One of my favourite things, which Corella on the phone to phone companies <laughs> try to get information. Sometimes they're helpful and most of the time they're not. But he mentions, McBain mentions, that there's a schlock orchestra arrangement of Penny Lane. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I went digging to see if I could find one that might be the sort of thing, and I found quite a few. There's some <laughs> dreadful orchestral arrangements of, of Penny Lane. There's also some amazing, terrifying Moog electronic synthesizer versions. Brilliant. I, I reckon the version that he's talking about is by the 101 Strings, 101 Strings Orchestra. Seems like Which is one of one of those groups that turned up in the late 60s that just did, you know, record after record of easy listening covers of things. Yeah, proper charity shop LPs. <laughs> yeah. So I'll have to dig that out and put that on the uh, on the Twitter feed for everyone to listen to and we can all pretend we're on the phone waiting for uh, information as Steve Carella was. Excellent. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing not particularly pertaining to anything we've mentioned mentioned yet, and you, you might mm-hmm. have had it on your list of things to talk about. But one thing I was going to ask was, um, you know, the show that uh, the art dealer is it Kern in his diary yeah. has been to see. It might be called oh, yes. Caper in the book. Um, is that a reference to the the musical that that um, Evan Hunter wrote? Possibly. Well, Morgan, I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> Were you paid to ask that question? <laughs> well, it was a good spot because you're entirely right, yeah. So there's a reference to this this musical called Caper, and it's, it's basically referred to as a bit of a flop. 
Um, the truth of the matter is it was a total flop. So this was written by Evan Hunter and it was due to be produced on Broadway in 1973. It was also supposedly lined up for a movie deal and everything. <laughs> and it dealt with a TV crime commentator who revealed a crime on air and is then threatened with death. Ooh, sounds brilliant. At one point, it was just it was renamed Mystery, and they definitely got as far as getting auditions ready for it. It's going to be produced by a guy called Stuart Ostro, and the music was by a chap called Jerry Bock. And I think from his records, he revised it again in September 1979, so that wasn't long before this book was written. So he's been very self-referential here about this thing. You know, it's another one of his attempts at doing something on the stage that didn't work. It's this... As you go through his history of stuff he's done, basically anything that he tried to do on stage just really didn't go down well or rarely got made, in fact. Yeah, I quite like that it was it was quite a self-deprecating reference in the, 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 uh, the I think he's written his own, own review in there, hasn't he? The, the, the guy, um, excellent music, terrible book or something. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And I believe as, as recently as 2010, it was still being planned to be to be staged as well Amazing. i found a reference to it in a book in a book about broadway stuff what did i find ostro had begun to conceive a murder mu- mystery musical he called caper and he recruited evan hunter uh, he made it he'd first made an agreement with richard rogers to write the music wow. but then jerry bock got involved to write both music and lyrics the challenge was to use music in a way that helps to make the suspense mount. The problem, said Hunter, is that, quote, suspense and mystery seem to disappear the moment someone opens their mouth to sing. (laughs) (laughs) Which I can understand. Who did it? Who did it? (laughs) This sounds a little bit like your musical of Hound of the Basketball, Steve. (laughs) Who did it? Who's got me booped? Who wiped the fingerprints from the thermostat? <laughs> Eat the musical. Oh. That was very good, that. That's it. You can, the stage, stage lights dim. We open on a scene of a bloated corpse in the middle of the stage. <laughs> I'd like to see the, the effects guys get that sorted. That corpse is disgusting. <laughs> Look at its boggly eyes. Like <laughs> Very good. Keep working on it. Um, anyway, Hunter withdrew, apparently, after many unsuccessful attempts, recalls Ostro. Even so, Jerry Bock had written a number of songs for the show and hoped to still do it as far as in the 2000s, essentially. So there you go. That's what that is. Good spot, Morgan. And another Easter egg, another McBain Easter egg. As we've... T- progress along there was some reference made there to the some the family of the the painter basically we we meet his brother we meet his mother we meet his wife who was planning who wanted a divorce from him who has a very strange relationship with with her her husband's mother Mm. it's a weird way she sort of goes to live with us and calls her mother in it's like it's very odd yeah it is a strange one and you just get into a little tangle of, of family members, solicitors, gallery owners, things like that, which is, that's what Corella's basically doing, isn't it? Mm. He's unpicking that. Yeah, because it's not very complicated, really, is it? You no. Know, if, if, he, if he had all the information that he ends up getting, mm. at, you know, at the beginning, it, it's very simple. It just takes, 
the main trick here is the delay of the time it takes him to complete his investigations, yeah. But then Kling's, so so basically that happens and that leaves space for the Kling story to unfold, which is the B and C plots mm-hmm. all intertwining. This guy chasing after Kling without him knowing it. So someone's tailing Kling. Kling is tailing his wife. The guy ta- tailing Kling shoots at him, which Kling then uses as a tool to get a court order to try and find this this guy who he thinks is sleeping with his wife. You just head in hands going, Bert, mm. stop it. <laughs> Why do you think he does it to Bert? Yeah. Poor old Bert. And, you know, it's I don't think it's by far the end of his trouble with women as far as the series goes on. I seem to recall him having, like, the odd spot of bother in the future, yeah, sadly. But I think the problem is, as with lots of sort of TV series, book series, whatever, once you actually make your characters happy, you very often lose any use for them, really. Because he's not, he's not now just writing simple strict police procedural because we know the characters now by this point in the series people aren't coming to it just for the procedural aspect even though that is brilliant still they want to come for the characters and if Kling's just a happy man with a, a, an attractive wife and loads of money you're not going to be interested quite because he's he, he's got Steve Carella to, to be the, the sort of happy married man um, he doesn't really need another one of those does he no and I think even Steve Carella's uh, family relationship starts to change a bit in the years to come as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, we, we do have some, some turmoil um, and so, some interesting uh, situations to to deal with in, in the future, don't we? But uh... Definitely do. Before we get into wrapping up on the, the, the various plot points and, and stuff, I've got one more little Easter egg I noticed. Mm-hmm. Did you spot the reference to a celebrity novelist who considered graffiti an art form? And I didn't know if that was referring to anyone particularly or not, but I guess it probably would be. Once you read McBain writing the word celebrity novelist, you know he's saying it with... He's not saying it to be nice. Um, I think... Uh, well, I, I'm I'm pretty sure this is right. It's a reference to Norman Mailer. Ah. I've never read Norman Mailer stuff. I, have, I read uh, The American Dream years and years ago. Any good? It was all right. Yeah, it was all right. A bit. I found the the his pro style a bit overwrought for for my liking, but it was okay. Yeah, he did a book called The Faith of Graffiti in 1974, mm-hmm. which I think is what is being referred to here. So McBain's telling us about the fact that the city, the subway, everything's covered in graffiti, and he's he's sort of saying that people are saying this is good. <laughs> so. Which I think the graffiti of the time is not quite the artistic statements that we often see now, where it's been sort of adopted as as that it is literally just scrawls everywhere, isn't it? This is that New York, that that world of yeah. the early eighties that you see in so many films and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, right. What do we think then about how this all wraps up? How it ends on the various plots. Steve-O, how do you think Kling gets <laughs> what comes to him? Well, yeah, totally inevitable, I would say. Um, yeah. Although there's a slight twist in that yeah, the person he thinks isn't the uh, involved party, but uh, a bit of an intermediary, I suppose, without giving it away. Um, yeah. 
But yeah, you know, I think even McBain very early on says, you know, it's a line to the effect of Kling knew it was doomed the moment he began tailing his wife. And yeah, yeah nothing happens to uh, hmm. prove that uh, not to be true, really. Yeah, like a Greek tragedy, it comes to an end that it was always going to come to. Yeah, but you got the, you know, you've got the X factor of this guy out of prison that you're not quite sure how that's going to pan out, but he he kind of gets dealt with fairly efficiently. He's just a bit hopeless, isn't he? That guy, I think, bit of a totally lost kind of individual. He's acting impulsively, really. So it turns out that when you've got a, a cop who's in a state of heightened emotion, even though he's thrown his gun away because he's upset, um, he he's, he's still manages to take this guy down. Yeah. So that's two arrests of this guy that Kling gets. Yeah, in the end. There's a sort of an interesting parallel between um, Halloran and, and Kling in a way, because Halloran claims that it, it's not his fault that he's, he's murdered his wife because... Um, He's discovered that I think he discovers that, that his wife's been cheating on him, and and I think later on we get we get the moment with Kling where he he feels like he he's almost going to lose control when he discovers that this is happening. But obviously his his uh, restraint and his training as a policeman kind of overpower that instinct. Um, yeah. But I think there's a deliberate parallel drawn between the two of them, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. That it's it's that fine line of of behavior attitude you know what yeah. what can take you one way or take you the other uh, the uh, so that's uh, it's an interesting thing it, i think it's really interesting that what he's done with cling there it's it's nice to have a story that doesn't involve just some woman trying to sleep with steve carella for once because <laughs> <Yeah. we, laughs> that's basically all we've had for about three or four books okay. and to actually give cling a not nice but a mature story to go on you know, it's he's single-minded in the pursuit of something wrong, or the, the wrong way to go about it. Let's say, mm. and it casts Corella in in a, a better light as as rather than you know, as he's casting back in the role of a good cop and a good man rather than this having to just mm, bat off another woman admirer type thing that's been going on that's been annoying me. <laughs> and the main plot then, the A plot. What about the conclusion of that? Which ends in a Q&A in the book, which is good. I don't know what I think, really. Um, yeah, I suppose, sl- I don't know, just slightly predictable, yeah. maybe, that bit. I don't know. You kind of... Because when the first wife turns <laughs> up with the hairy brother, you start wondering whether... And the art gallery guy, you start wondering whether they're the ones that are kind of involved. But... Um, uh, yeah, it kind of reverts to being the more slightly more obvious explanation. Yeah, the, so the wife and the mother pushed um, to the end of their tether with a, a drunken, horrible man, which, as a reader, you feel funny about because it's sort of like, well, I, I can't forgive them, but you can sort of understand, and that's always a strange thing with these things, is it's not, yeah, it's not a robbery, it's not some a robbery gone wrong or some hit or something like that. It's a personal tale. Um, so I suppose again that parallels. Uh, yeah, the the money the the money's yeah. the red herring a little bit, isn't it? Yeah. And the will change, you know, that essentially, um, <clears throat> excuse me, has yeah. uh, nothing to do with it. So it's perhaps the lesser of the plots in the book, maybe the first actual what you would call the main plot, really, 
other than Maya Maya's little vignette <laughs> at the side. So I think we're going to have to sum up because we're getting to, and then I've got some of the contemporary reviews to mention. I remember to do it this time. I had to stick them on at the front of the last episode because I'd forgotten to say, <laughs> say them. So I will go to, as a new reader then, Morgan, I'll go to you for um, your summing up and, and evaluation in terms of Kenneth. Oh, okay. Um, oh, yeah, I've, I've forgotten where we're, we're up to in terms of sort of overall Kenneth scores, but... Um, well, let's try and do it blind just, without just looking... Just going to wing it, ba- okay. Knowing that the last book we did was our lowest <laughs> that we've done. Okay, now let's have a think. So, yeah, I mean, I, I as a first-time reader, I did really enjoy it. I mean, definitely I can see that um, in some respects the actual mystery element of it isn't there as much as it is in some of them. The, 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 the main plot, it's not actually that mysterious. But I think with all the plots, there's a certain kind of overriding feeling of sort of grim inevitability about them. You kind of know where they're all heading, but it's still it's still a pretty exciting ride getting there. Um, Mm. And I quite like the way there's the sort of overriding sort of grim, really grim depiction of of marriage. I don't know how this, this uh, fits in with, um, with Evan Hunter's various divorces, but he's clearly not been in a particularly good frame of mind about, uh, about the the institution of marriage when writing this, because it's, it's it's three very bleak depictions of it. Um, but no, I, I found it. I found it really compelling. Um, I think it's a it's a good sort of reset after the the ludicrousness of of Ghost. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go in with a good strong seventy eight police shields. Seventy eight from Morgan. Uh, Steve, do you want to go? Yeah, I think I would uh, agree with most of that. Really, yeah, I think. Um... Maybe lacking in Dutch ghosts, I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> you know, you, these things can't be perfect. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, the, almost the crime's not centre stage here. Almost what's centre stage is the ty- the concept of the whole series, isn't it? The fact that you've got a bit of somebody's backstory, a crime, a bit of the backstory of the city, a backstory of the resident there. Yeah. Uh, all kind of working in parallel with similar themes really so yeah it's, it's probably one of those that's greater than the sum of its parts if you see what i mean yes yeah um, i get that so um yeah so in terms of a score i think i'd be very similar i think i would go with a yeah fairly uh a fairly solid 75 i would think yes okay, yeah, okay. out of 10 kind of it perhaps lacks a bit of explosive plot maybe mm. to be like writer you know a, a very high scorer yeah um, but um, a solid entry nonetheless that's good yeah well, it's an interesting one to, re- to read in the context of the way we're doing it now as in having read it after ghosts mm-hmm. because because of the way ghosts works or doesn't work and it being the thing that's been in our heads so uh, presumably the last time I read this, I hadn't read it just after Ghosts. I, I, that seems very unlikely. Reading it on its own would be a different experience if you hadn't read that one before. I think basically what Steve says is very, very good there about the some of the parts business because, yeah, I do like it. There's You've got these three tracks, these three parallels. 
I do. I really like the Maya Maya thing. It's a bit like that. There was that bit in Ghosts I really liked, that one chapter, yeah. because I like the colour of the squad room of the activities. Uh, I like that it's got lots of Easter eggs in for nerds like me, <laughs> but they're not so much that they would distract any other reader. You wouldn't... You. I don't think an average reader would question that there was a statue called something or yeah, they, they, that there was a musical. They don't seem unnecessarily forced or anything. It's not, uh, it doesn't, doesn't take you away from the, the plot or anything, does it? Oh, actually, well, I'm thinking on it in terms of that. Uh, there is one of his things is likes to reference Alfred Hitchcock. Hmm. And although obviously this hasn't got anything to do with the birds, he doesn't have a, he has a, a a sex worker, a prostitute character in this who goes by the name of Kim because she thinks she looks like Kim Novak. <laughs> and she doesn't, spoiler alert. No, indeed. <laughs> but she claims to be coming from Minnesota and to be younger because apparently that's what people want. And our friend Matthew Sullivan on Twitter said, McBain refers to this moral uh, panic, racial panic of of these prostitutes being brought into the city from from Minnesota, this thing called the Minnesota Pipeline. But, and it's, that apparently was a real problem. That So an NYPD boss and the later the police commissioner of Minneapolis debunked this theory. But for a long time, people thought there was this thing called the Minnesota Pipeline sending teenage hookers to New York. So the, And there was like a true-to-life, like sleazy paperback rushed out about it as well with interviews with prostitutes and pimps and things like that. So, yeah, that was in the air as well. So that's a, another bit of, of real-world stuff in there. Then with McBain layering on what he does best, which is characterization hmm. by giving this this prostitute more than just being a, you know, a faceless character in the book. She has this this name and backstory, which is just does amazingly well. He just yeah. How he's managed to keep doing it with these characters that you sometimes only see for three lines. <laughs> but I'm going to stick with a score of 75 and that will give us an overall Kenneth total of 76 police shields. Excellent. Seem all right? Yeah, it seems good to me. Yep. Okie dokie. Right. Thank you, Kenneth. Didn't have to do any rounding down there at all, or rounding up or whatever we, you know. So <laughs> let's have a quick, before we finish off, a quick look at what some contemporary people thought of it. No Newgate calendar, I'm afraid. <laughs> so, <laughs> but the New York Times review was done by Jeffrey Burke in Cops and Criminals. Mm -hmm. It says, with so much going on, Heat is an unusually busy entry in the series. Cling stuff draws attention away from the main case. But McBain invents brilliant destinies for Cling, Cling's wife and an ex-con. Has all the smaller delights fans expect from the series. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. And then he basically lists all the things that are great. Uh, mentioning Gennaro as being funny. <laughs> yeah. And some of the snappiest, most effective Q&A sessions in the genre. So that's good. Yeah. The Kirkus Review says it's one of the weaker recent books. Boo. But it still says never less than readable. An uneven patchwork of a novel from a writer who's pretty good even when he's below par. And essentially, that's exactly what Jean White says in the Washington Post as well. She says it's, you know, even when he's not at the top of the form, he still writes the best American police procedurals. He knows that a good police procedural novel is more than a hodgepodge of cases lifted from the police blotter. But in The Spectator, Harriet Waugh says, Mr. McBain rarely disappoints, and in heat, he is in tip-top form. Marvellous. 
So uh, oh, I've got one more. Okay, right. You'll like this one. Prepare yourself. <laughs> so this is from Crime Ration, Christopher Wordsworth in The Observer. This is from January 1982. I'm going to read this in full. <laughs> Heat by Ed McBain, Hamish Hamilton, £6.95. Suicide of an alcoholic, but why no suicide note? And why, when you can fry an egg on the Los Angeles sidewalk, why is he talking about Los Angeles? <laughs> why was the air conditioning switched off? Carella and the boys of the 87th Precinct sweat it out with a narcotics squad foul up and a twitchy cuckolded colleague to complicate things. McBain has been turning them out so long and competently that we tend to take him for granted. This is his best and least sententious for a lustrum. So his best and least sententious for a lustrum. How do you feel about sententious and lustrum, anyone? Confused Yeah, I had to look them up. And I consider myself to be somewhat of a smart ass. Sententious is given to moralizing in a pompous or affected manner. So he's basically saying he's not doing that. And lustrum is apparently a period of five years. Oh, there we go. So... But yeah, that's just one of those reviews that's like, you probably just shouldn't have bothered <laughs> writing that. It's just just words for words sake, isn't it? It is rather. And yeah, the, the Los Angeles bit is a, a bit of a sort of odd red herring, isn't it? Yeah, very strange indeed. Very odd. <laughs> we'll finish up there before we have our bonus episode in a minute. It's been a fairly long episode, this, but you know what? What else have we got to do? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> so we'll be back with a bonus episode and then the next book we're looking at and i'm very excited about this because i've not read it yet this is one i've not read it's ice from 1983 oh, my first ever one. Oh, oh excellent excited stuff. to go oh, back yeah. to it nostalgia kick brilliant right well in that case for the moment i'm going to say goodbye everyone so say goodbye <laughs> oh sorry i thought you were doing some whippy whip, whippy witty <laughs> I don't know yes no. goodbye goodbye yeah, fairly well <laughs> <laughs>